Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hey there, podcast friends. This is episode 60, and we have a patient story for you today. In this episode, we're delighted to bring you Claire, who is more frequently known by her Twitter handle as Sciatica Success. Claire Robertson is a patient advocate and person with a 30-year history of back pain and sciatica, who over the years has found ways to resolve and manage her long-term pain. This story highlights the despair and frustration that so many patients experience, being passed from pillar to post, getting told numerous different diagnoses, and struggling to find answers on how her pain could be improved. Her journey's taken her through everything from trying to correct her posture to working on improving core strength. Uh, It's included various different exercise regimes and much, much more. Claire is an advocate for the promotion of pain education for patients and for finding resolution, not just management of chronic pain. You can find her on her Twitter at Sciatica UK, where she hopes to inspire others and give them hope that they may not only manage, but hopefully fully resolve their pain one day. At the end, Claire also gives us all her best resources for managing long-term pain. For anyone anyone who is suffering from back pain, this is a really interesting listen. It's great to know there are others out there going through the same thing as you. Of course, that's why we have our dedicated Facebook group, the Sciatica and Back Pain Support Group UK, where a community of almost 4,000 members help and support each other's. For practitioners listening, this recording is an absolute must. Claire's story has taken place over many years, and thankfully, yes, things have changed a lot since she started this journey. But it can still be an incredibly useful tool to listen, use, and use the advantage of hindsight to think about what you could have done differently to better help Claire, especially in those early days. Then take this into your practices on Monday morning and use this to better your patient care. In other news, people, have you checked out our website yet? Thebackpainpodcast.co.uk. We have a provider map plugin. What this means is if you are suffering from pain uh, and you are looking for a provider, a clinician, a chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist, a a surgeon, a consult in your area, check out our provider map. This will tell you anyone who has been personally vetted by us that we've either had on the podcast or works in a very similar patient manner uh, so we know they're going to give you great care this is an awesome tool that we're just looking to expand to give you more confidence in who you're going to see finally if you listen to us have you taken the time to join our facebook group or follow us on social media we give a ton of extra info out through our socials every day so it really is worth it head over to instagram search the back pain podcast you'll find us there we only need a few more likes to get to that all important 2000 mark so head on over give yourself some free awesome content straight to your feed okay guys this is episode 60 sciatica success let's listen to claire's story let's go So Claire, welcome to the Back Pain Podcast. Thank you ever so much for joining us. No problem. So we'll kick it straight off. 
you know, with your experience of back pain, can you tell us how your back pain and sciatica started in the first place? Yeah, um, I was 18, which is pretty young to have something like sciatica. I, I was told by my doctor when I went to see him um, when I first had the symptoms, um, old people get sciatica. So that's the first one of the first things I learned about sciatica was old people get it. So that made me feel good. <laughs> so I was working in an office um, doing an admin job. And I was sat on, I can recall, it was a, a stool, so not your normal office chair. Uh, this was quite a long time ago as well. And I stepped off the stool, uncrossed my legs, and as I put my leg on the floor, I honestly thought somebody had shot me. I, I couldn't explain it in any other way. And I looked around the office to see who was pointing a gun at me. And I looked at my leg and nothing had happened. It really was like that. And um, I just thought, what the hell was that? Took another step, fine. Took a step with that same leg again. Nah, it happened again. Exactly the same feeling. It was like an e a bolt of, of a lightning, really, like an electrical feeling that went down my leg. And it just blew me away. I nearly sort of collapsed um, mm. just with the feeling. And then as I started walking again, it was intermittent. It just came and went. So that was the day my life changed, I guess. How, how long ago was this? So you, oh. you were 20. We, you don't have to give uh, specifics. You don't have to give away your no, age on air. But, you know, uh, but, uh, no, it's, it's, it's roughly. very rude to ask a lady her age, isn't it? Let's, let's see. So this would have been 1990, 1991. 91, okay. And then how did that, that pain then, you know, so whether you did something about it initially, how did that kind of progress in over the next few days, weeks, years? So, yeah, initially it was very intermittent. So it would just be in the one leg. So say from sort of buttock um, down to ankle um, and it would just come and go and come and go. And I mean, it was such a long time ago that I cannot recall the amount of the duration of time that it, it took to become what I would call permanent. So it mm. worsened to the point where I had it all the time. So what happened then, it wasn't just in the one leg, it transferred to the other leg as well. So I suddenly had it in both legs, but it wasn't all the time in both legs. It would be a varying degrees of intensity as well. And, you know, pain is a, a funny thing with, you know, your, how do you feel on the one to 10 scale, the infamous one to 10 scale? Uh, everyone's going to say 10 because everyone's pain is, is painful to them. Uh, I think I can, I haven't had children, so I'm not able to compare it to childbirth, but I think I can categorically say that most of the time it would have been around the nine or 10 mark. It was bad all the time. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's horrific. 24-7. 24-7. Not just when I was moving, 24-7. So we're talking daytime, nighttime everything so you couldn't sleep you couldn't function you couldn't go about your normal activities everything was was inhibited by pain well no I did go about my day-to-day -day activities what happened um I continued working so I was working in an office I never stopped working in the office and I never took time off sick one reason was because I was a temp so back in those days temps just got paid an hourly rate for the job you do no sick pay and secondly, it was the way that I was brought up. If you don't work, you don't have an income. And that's the ethic that had been instilled in me by my parents. 
And it didn't even cross my mind to think of benefits. You know, again, my family, we, we, we didn't know about benefits. We've always worked, earned a living. So it didn't, didn't cross my mind. And I didn't want to. I think, I think the overriding thing really was I didn't want to do that. Um, the one thing that did have to stop was sport. I was really sporty growing up. I used to like running um, anything with a, a racket sport. Everything had to stop. Um, but everything else carried on, as in I went to work every day. Um, I still lived at home with my parents, obviously, for quite a long time. Well, only took about five years, actually. Um, but my sort of working life carried on. Outside of work was an interesting one. I mean, it it might be something we'll come back to in the conversation um, because one of my hobbies outside of work was music and going to concerts. And I didn't stop going to concerts because it was such a passion of mine. Mm. But I think what you'll find interesting is that the pain would reduce when I was at a concert. So at the time, I didn't know this and I didn't know why. So many years later... I got an answer to that. So my life at that point in time when the pain was really bad, I still worked. I kind of battled through, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was just, you know, you you just, you don't let it beat you. I'm quite stubborn. So I was very much of, this isn't going to beat me. So I'm going to carry on working. I'm going to carry on going to gigs. That was that. But sort of social life was very difficult. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you feel looking back now that that stoic attitude of, I just want to get on with work. And, you know, I, you know, as you said, as a lot of people listening to this will probably say, I wouldn't dream of not working. You know, it's just it's just what I have to do. Do you feel that helped or do you think that hindered looking back kind of 20 years later or 30 years later? Sorry, I should say. Yeah. 30 years later, I know. I'm, I'm difficult to believe, I know. I know, I'm feeling um, old too. <laughs> it's. I think that's a really interesting question because on the one hand, I think it helped. And on the other hand, it was detrimental. I think it helped because it kept me in a routine. It kept my mind occupied so that I wasn't able to get caught up in all the negative feelings that come with pain. Um, I had a supported family, so that helped as well. So keeping on having that routine, um, I think it was a good thing. The part of keep battling through and fighting it and working through it no, that was not a good choice. Mm. At the time, I didn't have a choice or I felt I didn't have a choice, but it wasn't a good thing because then, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of moving years down the line now where we're getting into the neuroplasticity side of things because all I was doing at that time was carving out those roads to the negative neural pathways that were being built so that it was all becoming very habitual in a very short space of time. Yeah, and then you're in that in that negative loop almost again and again and again, which you know very difficult to get out of. So then you're in this situation, you know, you're you're powering through, you're in a lot of pain day to day. Did you try things at that time to try and help? You know, whether that's other therapists or you know a doctor. You know, what was your kind of go to back then to to try to give you some relief? Well, it's it's quite funny looking back because when you say, "Oh, I've got back pain," or you know, my foot hurts, my hand hurts. There's always going to be somebody, be it your friends or family, that will say, I know somebody that can help with that. Why don't you go and yeah. see so-and-so? So, And you do. You know, when you've had nothing like this in your life before, you go, oh, great. And, you know, you get really excited and, and the anticipation that this person is going to fix you. 
that's your overriding feelings is oh, I might find somebody that can just make it all go away. Um, and looking back, I had that feeling many times uh, when I saw different practitioners, because every time I would see somebody else, I think, oh, maybe they can fix me. So it wore off. Um, after a number of times but initially going back to when it first started um, again things memories have have got a bit mixed up over the years Um, I think one thing I wish I would have done was to have actually made a a diary of all this from day one really which I never did Um, I definitely know that I saw a relative of mine uh, recommended a guy that did Alexander Technique now Alexander Technique is posture based um I didn't realize at the time what the point of it was and where he was coming from. So I didn't really engage with him as much as I would have if I would have fully understood how my body could potentially have benefited. Um, I did a few sessions with him and it sort of made me think about posture Um But then I saw a chiropractor. People at work recommended a chiropractor and osteopath, actually, uh, both of them. Um, And I realized what the difference between the two was. At the time, I think somebody said one treats the area and the other one looks at you more holistically with the whole body. Now, I was seeing the chiropractor for two years. And in all honesty, I didn't really benefit from anything. But I think you get into that mindset of you go along made me click in a few places, must be doing some good. And then you go back to life again and then you see him for and the, and the next week and you do the same thing. And But I let this carry on for two years because I, I just believed that something good surely was going to happen at some point. And the osteopath, I think the from memory, um, the one thing that I do remember at the time that stands out to me now is he was able to find my sore spot bearing in mind that these were pretty horrendous and he used to use his elbow on my sore spots and I didn't know what that was at the time just that it hurt a lot uh I I know now what it was and what he was doing and it was very symptomatic relief only but again I paid to see him quite regularly um you know a, a result of this is is the financial side of it, that was also a stress. I've never had a career which has been due to my pain um, and I've never earned big bucks. So all my money was being spent on treatments. And as you probably well know, even back in the day, they were not cheap. No. So that was another sort of obstacle, if you like, that I had to deal with. When you're desperate, you mm. will find the money. Uh, so that was the first things I tried really was, was, was those things. Um, bearing in mind, this is all before the internet. God, that makes me sound really old. <laughs> this was all before the internet. So you're relying on friends and family to, to recommend things to you to try. Um, or the yellow pages. So, or the yellow pages. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. You know, there was a lot of things I, I did reflexology. Um, the person that I was, that I saw just said, you know, this probably won't help, but, you know, let's give it a go. And, you know, he prodded bottles in my feet and my stomach rumbled, that kind of thing. Um, didn't really do much from a back pain. Um, I saw somebody that did Chinese medicine. They actually said to me, I don't think we can help you. <laughs> uh, so I didn't pursue that yeah. one. Um, and did it, did anything, 
So I was going to say, did any of these people actually, I mean, did you have a diagnosis about what was causing sciatica or was it just, we think mm. that, was it a different structural diagnosis from every different person you saw? No, nobody ever gave me a diagnosis. And even though I'd gone to the doctor in the early days, um, the doctor gave me ibuprofen. That, that was the solution, you know, laid me on the table, stuck my legs in the air uh, and gave me ibuprofen and that was it. So for quite a long time, and I probably mean years, I, I was taking ibuprofen regularly, which as we now know is not a very good sort of medicine to take, especially I was just taking willy nilly without food, um, you know, and it, it took the edge off to begin with. And after a while, they began to have no effect at all. Um, I did go back to doctor to be referred to see for physio. Um, physio, again, was quite symptomatic. I've, I'd ha I've had quite a few sessions with NHS physios, but I always left feeling um, abandoned, really, because there was never any follow-up. There was never any support. It's just try this and then you just let go out of the system with nothing. So it almost, you know, the the medical profession pushed me down the private route because nobody took an interest. Um, the diagnosis is a really interesting one because I never, ever got a formal diagnosis. And I diagnosed myself in the end what, just through my own research. What did you diagnose yourself with? Mm. Well, obviously, I knew I had sciatica hmm. um, when the Internet came along. And luckily, you know, stuff came up on there, which was amazing to find. Uh, I was able to then try and piece together what the cause of my sciatica was, because that's what I was looking for. I mean, anybody in pain, you want a cause. Hmm. And whilst I was having all of these treatments and things as well, I was still looking for what I had. So I don't know why, but one day I woke up and I stopped trying to find what I had. And I started to look at it in the other way because I'd been told by various people over the years that I didn't have this or I didn't have that. So I thought, actually, if I don't have all these things, that's actually going to narrow what, it is that I have got rather than looking for a needle in a haystack. Why don't I actually look for what I haven't got, which will make the place. It was like a total, like total reframing the situation. And it made mm. it a bit easier for me to, to handle with. like that. Mm. So the more I was being told there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you. It was more frustrating than anything because when you're stuck in the most excruciating pain and you're being told there's nothing wrong with you, you, you just want to scream. You just want to scream. Um, it's such so a difficult, say, difficult thing to, uh, to, to approach. You yeah. know, it's, it's so hard and so many people get it wrong. And then we end up with, unfortunately, such sad stories like this, you know, where people have been told there's nothing wrong, mm. nothing wrong. And it makes you feel shit, really. You know, when you're sat there in pain and you're thinking, well, there obviously is something wrong because I'm in agony. Exactly. And I think that even itself, I, I think if you're not a very strong or resilient person, that can that could really have a, a bad impact on somebody. I don't think I realised so much over the years how resilient and st stubborn I am, <laughs> which is it's worked to my advantage, you know, to be honest, uh, mm. because I just never gave up researching. So so when I was researching on the Internet about sciatica, um, 
I, I don't remember where I found it, but I found something that said there's real sciatica and false sciatica. So real sciatica was pressure from um, a, 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 a disc, something like that. Uh, false sciatica was uh, piriformis syndrome. Um, so then I started learning more about the anatomy because I thought it was in my interest to actually understand where the sciatic nerve was, uh, where it all exits from from the spine, uh, how the discs are constructed in the vertebra. Um, and it re- and I loved it. I actually really enjoyed it. I think that's what helped me as well because I found anatomy fascinating. Um, mm. And I suddenly thought, well, I've got false sciatica then, haven't I? Because I don't think I've, I've got pressure from a disc. But looking back, I think that probably was the case. I think I had an initial injury, which perhaps was pressure from a disc and that disc bulging healed but by that point the chronic pain had taken hold so that's kind of the conclusion I've got to with the sciatica um, over the years so I then came to believe that I had piriformis syndrome because it had to be had to be piriformis syndrome Um, and all my research then led me on to posture and this is this is a pretty massive thing for me with the posture um, because I was still looking for a cause of my pain. I still didn't have any knowledge of anything otherwise. So narrowing it down to there's nothing wrong with me. And then I began thinking, oh, OK, maybe it's in the way I move. There were quite a few revelations that happened sort of over the years with posture. Um, The first thing was uh, I saw a guy um, in Harley Street, a specialist in Harley Street. He was a gait and uh, posture specialist, something like that. Uh, somebody at work who I was working at the time said, oh, I see this great guy. I, I was in London, by the way. I'd moved to London during this time. Um, saw this guy in, in in London. So I went to Harley Street. Um, he was charging something like £70 for half an hour's treatment, which was outrageous. I in the was, 90s as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was earning like 10 grand, you know? Yeah. Um, so I went to see this guy in Harley Street, um, posture and gait specialist, and he put me on a treadmill. My thinking was, if he doesn't know what's wrong with me, nobody does. And I, I put all of my hopes on him he didn't know it but I did Mm. and he put me on a treadmill and he watched me walk and that was it went back the next week to see him and his diagnosis if you like uh or resulting sort of fix for me was a heel lift in my shoe classic (laughs) good heel lift in my shoe I thought oh well, in one way, I thought, really? If it's as simple as a heel lift in my shoe, I'm cured. This is brilliant. Yeah. And they weren't cheap. I had to have these things specially made. I even had some of my shoes adapted because what had happened, this is the interesting point, what had happened over the years of being in pain, My when I was wearing trousers or jeans or anything, one leg would scrape on the floor, the bottom of the material. 
And I couldn't get my head around it. Why was this happening? It never happened before. What had happened to my legs? <laughs> Something must have happened. So then, so putting a heel lift in, you thought, oh, that's obviously going to fix that problem as well in terms of it's, it's all linked together. It's, 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 a, it's a key exactly. to that lock. Yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't have to have keep having to have the my clothes altered and yeah, you know, and then I'd be in no pain as well. And I really, really believed in this and thought that this would work. And I, I carried on with it for God knows how long. I, I don't even remember, mm. but it became quite apparent that it wasn't a fix at all. Um, and I'd wasted more money, yeah. uh, more time. So what? Um, I mean, you were going through all of this over years, you know, what motivated you to keep going? Because this is a, you know, a long journey and you're in pain this whole time. And a lot of people would have, you know, immediately jumped into drugs and surgery and those type of things. You know, what motivated you to carry on going? I think that's, that's another really interesting one as well, because um, like I said, I think my stubbornness, because I am very stubborn and I just don't like not that I'm competitive, but I don't like things like that to beat me. And I think, I think the thing was when it became apparent that I had nothing wrong with me, then I thought, okay, well, if there's nothing wrong, then I've got to prove it. I've got to prove that there's nothing wrong and I'll do everything I can. But the other thing was as well was I think the overriding factor was I didn't want to end up in a wheelchair and it scared me because I really, really did believe I'd end up in a wheelchair. And I didn't want my family, I didn't want to be that burden on my family and my friends, everybody. It, it just, life wouldn't be worth living. It wouldn't. And, and yeah, I did have those thoughts. I did have those thoughts in the very, very darkest moments. And I never, ever confided in anybody at the time about that. Never. I did have those thoughts, but I'm very lucky with my family. And they were the one thing that, kept me here really and music my passion for music I thought no I you know I love that too much to go anywhere I I, I still want to be around to see this yeah. so and, and I think you know if I didn't have that I dread to think what would have happened because I absolutely did have those moments um so luckily I pushed it to the back of my mind and just thought no I'm gonna beat this I am gonna beat this Good. And I didn't give myself that choice. I think that's the thing. I didn't give myself that choice. It's like, you are going to do this because if you don't, you know what the other thing is that will happen. Um, so it was like giving myself a talking to really. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, I kept on, I kept on, I kept going, going to doctors and having the physio on the NHS. Uh, I think the one thing that came out with the posture the first time I realized with posture changes in my movement was um, I just suddenly thought, you know what, I'm going to try an exercise class. I'm going to try an exercise class. And I think people at the time had been talking about Pilates or I'd heard or read something about Pilates. So I found a local class and went along and it was really great really really great and I can distinctly remember like it was yesterday um I was I like standing at the front of the class just so that I can see what the teacher's doing and make sure that I do the doing right it right thing. yeah now that feeds into perfectionism so I'm sure we'll come <laughs> yeah. that soon. I didn't know it at the time yeah. but it does so 
So I, I remember it was in like a school hall and one side was glass and it was dark. It was at night in the winter and the lights were off in the corridor outside. So the teacher was saying, um, you know, stand like this, da, 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 da. So, and I just remember glancing across and I could see myself in the glass, my reflection. And what I thought I was doing, I wasn't. Mm. And I was just like, ah, hang on a minute. So let me, you know, look at her again. Let me just adjust, you know, look in, look in the, the glass, look at my posture. And when I was in the right position, it felt wrong. It felt so wrong. And I just thought to myself, There's no, no, this is not right. Seriously? And it was such a revelation. I couldn't believe what was happening. So that really opened my eyes. Did, did, so did you feel that, because it felt wrong when you were meant to be doing it right, that there was obviously something wrong with you, if that makes sense. Because obviously, yeah. yes, because you were always in this wrong position. And when you put you into the air quotes, correct position, it, it, if it felt bad, it was obviously good, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, that sort of, I didn't really sort of think of it in that way until a bit, a bit later on. At the time, I just thought, what the hell? <laughs> I really just don't understand this. I didn't understand what was happening. So I kept going to the classes and then realizing, whoa, there is something major going on here. And then suddenly my focus, my focus was posture because I, it dawned on me. I suddenly thought, I think I found what's wrong with me. It's my posture. So that's what then led me suddenly focus was all on the posture route. And, and again, I think the in interesting observation in the words that I'm using here is that I believed that posture was the cause of all of my back pain. Do you, do you feel that was different and that was a, a bigger trigger compared to other things because you came up with that thought as opposed to someone telling you something? If, if, you know, if, that, if that is a question. <laughs> um, I don't know because I, I think during, during my whole journey, nobody's told me anything. Okay. So I haven't even got that comparison to make, apart from just being told there's nothing wrong with you. Um, nobody had ever told me anything that was right or wrong or this or that or any observations ever. So I'd always been the, I've been the one that's made all the discoveries all along. So whether it would have made a difference or not, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think it's probably around this time when I, when I started to do this with the uh, getting back into exercise, I think this is where the sciatica started to disappear because it did. Yeah. It slowly started to get better. What age are you at this point in the story, Claire? How, how many years are we from that initial step off the stool? This probably would have been around 1999. Mm. So nine on 10 years, give or take, from, mm. from the initial onset. Yeah, I, I've actually, yeah, I think the, the kind of initial onset of just the symptoms beginning to reduce was probably <clears> around the 99-2000 mark. Um, I was still getting, I, I can look back and I know now, uh, episodes, which I think we could probably say the word flare, even though there was always an element of pain there all the time, which would, would be my lower back, my buttocks, my hips. Um, and even just tops of my legs, tops of my thighs, I would have instances of it being horrendous. So where it used to be like that all the time, suddenly that was reducing, but then I would have moments of it suddenly getting worse. Mm. 
I know why, <laughs> but I'll be jumping ahead if we, we yeah. start talking about that. So I, I know now, I know why now, but looking back, I didn't understand. So so the, the periods of the sciatica beginning to disappear was very gradual, probably due to the movement I was making. Perhaps it was due to the beliefs that I had as well that may have had an impact um, to the point where the sciatica did disappear completely. Uh, it was more of like an area of pain in the tops of my thighs that would sometimes be like an electric shock. So I think that was then coming from piriformis and lots of trigger point stuff going on. So the movement with the Pilates, that's where that, that sort of started to happen. Um, and I think it was around about 2000, 2001-ish, I migrated to yoga as well. Mm. I started to do yoga. And same thing happened, more pain reduced. And I was still more interested in the posture. And again, with yoga, you know, there's a uh, it's very, very big on, on posture, depending on what sort of types of yoga you do and, and what have you. So, yeah, I think that definitely was... A, a, a kind of you know starting point on I am getting better and I will continue to get better because I've started something now I've found a piece of my jigsaw puzzle so um, and I'm, I'm, you know I'm not gonna not gonna give up now so I need to keep yeah, finding plugging. new things mm. so looking back I mean obviously at the time then you felt that that was you know a, a bit of a game changer looking back you know 20 years later do you feel that that was the thing that tipped the scales or was there something else that then pushed you even further in the, in the, in the right direction towards improvement, recovery, whatever term you'd like to label it? It, you know, it's, I, I love this because it's so complex because I don't think there's an easy answer to that because yes, I do think the posture was a game changer, but, and this is only relatively new thinking when I've actually spoken about my, my story before, I think a lot of my pursuing the posture was to do with my beliefs and understanding the science now of pain and the things that happen in the brain. If I truly, truly believed at the time that my posture was the cause of my pain, who's to say that that in itself didn't aid some of the recovery? I think it did. Mm. So it wasn't just my physical body and my the way that it moved in space and me correcting my posture, if you like. I think it was, I think it had an impact. Absolutely, I do. And I'll say, I'll tell you why in a minute. But I do also think that it was my belief in chasing the posture route because I did, I 100% bought into my posture is the cause of my pain. So they definitely both go hand in hand as game changers. One of them I was aware of, which was the movement and the alignment of my body. The science part of it, I had no awareness of at all. I know that now, which is why I actually think looking back, that's why it did change things. And it was a silent game changer, a hundred percent. So then if that, you know, that understanding that, that, you know, or changing your beliefs about pain, um, as I said, we know now that how impactful that can be. What's your understanding looking back on why that helped you? 
in terms of from the from the pain science side that you know we spoke about neuroplasticity kind of before we came on air um about its role in pain you know how do you understand that your beliefs changed that pain for the for the better because of the it's it takes in habits there are certain habits and it's not just physical habits it's thought pattern habits um the fact that the pain reduced that was only going to impact my beliefs even more and if you're changing the way you think about things you are changing the neural pathways so that's my understanding of the science side side of it so some of those neural pathway neural pathways which were just you know concreted in I was gradually beginning to undo those unwittingly. I didn't know, but I was definitely beginning to undo those neural pathways very slowly and steadily. And I think if I was to sort of draw a pattern of my pain, it would almost be, you know, I was at the bottom here and I was at the top and there's where I want to reach. I would go up a little bit and then I'd plateau. And then I think, right, what can I do now? What, what's the next step? What can I start to change? What can I think about? Then I'd mm. do something. I'd go up a few more steps and then I'd plateau again. So the whole 30 years has been a real stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. Bearing in mind, I've had literally no support, no guidance. So it's all been about me being innovative, me being curious. I think curious is a, a really good word and very, very interested in my body and the way it's it works because going back to the posture i think it's quite important to say this apart from the 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 sort of neuroplasticity side of it with the posture i know that the jury is out amongst physios and people in the medical profession about posture i've seen quite a few things on twitter where people sort of go posture you know and i think no actually no i think that you've got to have an open mind and consider everything and for me my thinking about it is that I discovered that my body didn't didn't move in the way that it was intended to move the pain had caused so much overcompensation which means you're overloading other muscles and joints blah blah that that became the vicious circle of pain that I got stuck in and to break that, changing those, what had become habits of moving in the incorrect way, that definitely, I believe, had an impact on my recovery. It then flips the circle because you you then you start feeling better because you know we've changed your beliefs and we you know we've got the, all those positive beliefs going on, which you know have a huge impact on on, on pain. You then go back to what changed that, which was exercise and movement, which again, we know is one of the best things which you can do for pain. And then you then again, believe it works. And then you're in that kind of positive upward cycle of, you know, getting better, you start feeling more positive, And then you go back to doing what helped, which is, as you said, for you was Pilates and yoga and other forms of movement therapy and those type of things, which again, then over the last, I guess, have you still been doing that for the last 10, 10, 10 20 years, carrying on with yoga and Pilates? Yeah, I, I I stopped it actually at the time when we were talking about it, and then I got back to it in two thousand and four, and I've I've done it regularly since two thousand and four now. Brilliant. 
I think one of the one of the things that's just come out of this that you just said because that makes it sound very wonderful, lovely. It's simple, blah blah blah. It's just about. It's oh, it's far from that. I wasn't trying to. <laughs> it's far from that. It's, yeah, it's far from that. And and I think I think the one of the most important factors, which I saw something recently on Twitter actually, which I was pleased to see because I don't see it um, myself when I'm researching, is fear avoidance. And I only learned the word fear avoidance last year, the year before, quite quite recently. And the way that I explain fear avoidance to people is that there's two types. There's an external fear avoidance. So frightened to go out, frightened to do activities. So it's a physical fear avoidance. The other one is internal fear avoidance. And that's what I believe happened to me. So my brain said to certain areas of my body, don't move, don't work, don't use those muscles because it's going to hurt. Now, in my journey to getting well, I think the only time this was it was ever picked up on, but it wasn't made aware to me at the time, physio on the NHS, they had this little, it was like an assault course. <laughs> I remember the room and it was laid out and there was different movement stations and what they did they put a piece of tape down my back and I didn't fully understand why and I had to do all these different movements and it it still didn't add up in my head what that was all about now I know completely what it was about so I'm getting back to the point of when I was born I was born luckily able-bodied with all four limbs everything worked Pain meant that things began to work differently. I stopped using muscles in my body. I started holding tension in other areas of my body. The leg length difference can be explained because all the muscles that are in my waist, so between my hip bone and my rib cage, they shortened. They shortened because they weren't being used and because I was holding so much tension. And those muscles hoiked my hip up to the point where I had about that much difference in leg length. Now, that's half a an lot. inch. <laughs> that's a lot to somebody that never had a leg length difference like that. Now, nobody, nobody pointed that out to me ever. So I've learned that that is what happened in my body, my internal fear avoidance. And when I keep reading things on Twitter and wherever I'm doing my research, saying to people in pain, movement, get back to movement, I, I wince because how many other people with chronic pain might need to look at posture and correct things? Because if they're moving in the way that I was, I thought I was moving in the right way when I was doing exercise, but actually that could perpetuate my pain then surely that has to be looked at in people who are born able-bodied and whose bodies should work symmetrically. If it's not, then I think there's a big link missing here in helping people recover. But I do also know that changes in posture don't always mean pain. I know that too. That's why this is, it's very complex, but I don't think posture should always be ruled out. No, I think, I mean, I'll show you uh, from my perspective where I kind of stand on that is that 
yes, we know that pain has very little impact. You know, specific postures have very little impact on pain. So there's no perfect posture to be in. There's nothing which is you know ideal for every single person across the board. You know we know we know that's not true. But what we do know is lack of movement is a contributor to pain. So, you know, exactly what you said, you know, that muscle guarding, that fear avoidance has such a big impact on pain. And an example I give to a lot of patients is, you know, the, the classic example when someone's hurt their back is they bent forward, you know, they bend over to pick something up and their back's, you know, air quotes, gone, you know, sort of, you'll see it twice a day in, in my clinic, you know, my back's gone. And they will then be so fearful of moving forward, understandably, because they just moved forward and now they've got you know, eight out of 10 pain. So why would they want to do it again? But unpacking that and then getting them to then do that movement again has such a big impact on recovery. So these patients, and especially if you've been told, oh, you know, which we used to say to patients, you know, 15, probably earlier than that, 15, 20 years ago, oh, avoid flexion, don't bend forward, that's bad for your back. And then you flex forward and you and it hurts. Why would you ever flex forward again? So then you've got this whole movement that you're designed to do, which you aren't doing. So then getting patients to understand that and, you know, change it. Obviously, that doesn't mean you go and flex forward and pick up heavy things from day one, but it might mean bending down to touch your toes whilst you're sat on a chair, you know, and flexion is a big, you know, in my opinion, the number one, you know, fear avoidance behavior that I see. I'm sure there are, there are significant other ones as well, but so that's kind of the, the approach which I come from it. And it's not necessarily that there's a, I wouldn't say to pers a person that there's a better position to be in, but it's just movement is going to be the key here to an extent. But there are levels of that. You know, that might, doesn't mean you have to go to an exercise class. That might just mean, yeah, chair-based movement, you know, bending down to touch your toes whilst you're in a chair or moving side. I'm doing all the movements now on camera for those who are listening, <laughs> you know, moving side to side whilst you're in a chair. And it's just getting that movement back, which you can do pain-free. And then you can then change those neural pathways that that, that that flexion isn't necessarily bad. But if your brain, you're in, as you said, that kind of internal fear avoidance is always telling you that it's bad, of course it's going to hurt when you start bending forwards, even though you're not doing anything wrong. You know, you're not damaging anything or breaking anything. You know, we know that pain doesn't equal damage, you know, which is summed up, you know, by your story perfectly. Um, so breaking that cycle of flexion and fear avoidance is so, so important, I think, early on, early on in, in patient's recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I think really, you know, if I was going to do my journey again, Absolutely. I mean, I, I did come across that quite early, um, but I do think it's a quite significant factor to look at that. And, you know, th there might be different extremes of the fear avoidance. I believe mine was really extreme. And I will give you an example because this is quite funny. Um, I was on holiday uh, in Spain however many years ago it was. Um, it wasn't that long ago, to be honest with you. Um, and at the time I was wearing a bikini, what have you, uh, I was just walking along the beach and I, just, I don't know why, but I happened to look down. And as I looked down, I noticed that my belly button was only turning to one side <laughs> and it was only turning. Oh, as you were walking. Yeah. When I was walking, it was only turning to the left side. And I, and again, it was one of those, what the hell, <laughs> what is going on? I don't get this. So I stopped and then I made it turn to the other side and it was wrong. It was wrong. Felt wrong. Completely wrong. And I just thought, oh, my God, what is going on? So I purposely, consciously started looking down and walking and remembering what that felt like to move my belly button to the right side. And I just thought, oh, this is just a joke. I started to look at myself walking. If I was somewhere like my gym, so it had a mirror uh, sort of far, far end of the room, 
and I would walk towards the mirror to watch my movement. And Mm. that really helped me. The same as when I did yoga, I used to watch myself in a mirror so that I could remember what the movement felt like so that it would be right, so that I would, it would look right. And it must have been, it must have done something in, you know, in my head to make me think my posture, you know, I should be moving this way because that's my pain has obviously caused me to not move in a natural yeah. way. So yeah, you know, the, I suppose it, it's moving in unnatural yeah. ways. So I do think that for people with pain, it's important to explore that and investigate it because when you're, when you go and see a physio or a chiropractor or osteopath, you're lying on a bed. All right. You might do some movements when you're standing up, but you certainly don't do the range of movements, which you would do in everyday life when that practitioner might not pick up any extreme unnatural movement because it could, it could be impacting the pain. Yeah, and 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 then learning what that movement is, and you said you did, you came about that that realization yourself, which you know I don't think I've ever looked at my belly button when I'm walking. I, I don't think maybe I have, but uh, I, mean, I might start now and see see what it's like. Yeah. Come today, that's it. So what? I've often looked at yours, Rob. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your life like now, Claire? You know, you've obviously had this journey. You know, this incredible journey of you know pain, pain free. You know, severe pain, everything. You know, what's it like now, 2021? Well, it's nothing like it used to be. Um, I am managing pain. Uh, that phrase does, does uh, it annoys me a little bit because it means different things to different people. And I think terminology and pain is so important. For me, managing my pain means I've still got it and I live with it. But it also means that I can manage it to the point where I don't have it anymore. So I have made those changes, be it physical and also um, in my brain, the changes in my brain, which are huge because it's all to do with habitual thinking patterns. Um, That has had such an impact that I am pretty much pain free. Now, I get flare ups and the flare ups I've been able to work out over the years are due to stress. And that can be stress of any kind, any kind. Um, It was specifically work stress, which was interesting. I was able to suddenly work that out and see a pattern. So it was work stress um, and exercise. If I do too much exercise, um, I may get a twinge, not necessarily a flare, can be a twinge, in my hip, it's in my glutes, it's normally my glute, min or mediasis, yeah, a bit of a pain, literally. But I know why, I know why I get it. So I'm at the point now, I'm at the end of the journey, absolutely. And I'm learning about the neuroscience, I'm learning about uh, meditation. I've meditated through yoga for years, but I didn't know the full impact of meditation regularly to control pain. Um, there are loads of healing meditations free on YouTube. I use a lot of those. Uh, my beliefs, beliefs is massive. So I am now uh, tricking, trying to trick my brain. That's what I call it. I am tricking my brain to make myself believe that I am well and healthy and to calm my central nervous system and tell myself there is nothing wrong with me. 
I think it's uh, this might feed into sort of acceptance of stuff as well, because I don't have the life that I had before I was 18. And I don't expect to have that. Some people have a real issue with that. And they grieve for the person that they were. I don't at all. Because where I am now is a shed load better than where I was 30 years ago. And I am so grateful for that. So everything that I can do, I'm happy with. I want to do more. I do want to do more. I love my exercise. I want to be doing hit classes. And you can probably hear the enthusiasm. I'm going to try <laughs> because I won't give up. Mm-hmm. So I'm really working with the beliefs now because this is what I believe is the end of my journey is the beliefs, positive affirmations, bringing them into my daily life, calming my nervous system, telling my subconscious brain, because that's the driver of it, telling my subconscious brain, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. We can do this. Um uh, you know, it might take another 10 years. If it does, it does. I don't put a time limit on things because you you cannot do that. No. We are so individual and unique, every single one of us and our pain. It will be done when it's done. There is no right and wrong and there is no time limit on anything. So I'm working with this. I don't work against it anymore. It's not a battle. My pain is part of me. I We are one and the same thing. I don't get angry with it anymore. Yeah. I try and not to get frustrated and and angry and upset. I don't get upset at all, actually. So it's, you know, it's a work in progress. It's a constant work in progress. um, And I won't ever give up. So you you mentioned there, and I'd like to put on that thread a bit about that acceptance. Um, You know, is in your book, have you, have you accepted the pain or have you acknowledged the pain? You know, is there a a difference between those two? There is to me. And again, I think the words are very important to, every individual, they will have a different meaning. I don't think there's a right and wrong. For me, it's always been, I've never accepted it, never accepted pain. I might have reluctantly in the early days just thought, well, this is it for the rest of my life. I've just, I'm accepting is that's the way things are and they will be permanently. It, mm. Acknowledging, it was a, a friend actually on a pain course. It was a, a, a that said to me, I, I don't accept it. I acknowledge it. And I thought, ah, that's the word I've been looking for. I acknowledge my pain. It's just giving it a check. It's just like, yeah, I know you're there. I know you're there. And that's fine. And it's fine. But it's absolutely not an acceptance because, you know, there's going to be a day in the future where there will be no pain anymore. Accepting for me is permanent. Uh, It's a permanent way of life. It's a, you know, it will never disappear. This will always be here. So for me, it's just a, just a check in. I know you're there when it shows its face. And I'm acknowledging that you're there. It's just a, a little agreement between both of us. It's like, fine. Okay. Fantastic. So I think the last kind of things I'd like I'd like to touch on, if you'd be okay with, was advice really for other people, and that's you know both for kind of clinician, I can't speak today, clinicians listening as well as you know people in pain suffering. So if we're starting with kind of people who are in pain or who might be starting out on this kind of journey of back pain, which might sound very similar to you, kind of you know twenty thirty years ago, what advice would you have for them starting out on their journey now? I think one of the um one of the things that I stand for really is, is recovery that people can get well. Um, I don't seem to see and hear enough of this out there. Um, I'm not saying that it will happen for everybody, but it absolutely is possible. Um, I think people, people have to understand that it's their pain is their responsibility um, it's not a case of you go and see your GP and say, I want somebody to fix me because it just ain't going to happen like that. And it's not simple because pain is complex. Um, you know, it, 
you have to, I think education, absolute education is everything. Where they get that education from is, is uh, yeah, another story, perhaps. Social um, media. Yeah. <laughs> social media, yeah. Just knowing where to get the education is, is the thing, really. Um, just not to give up not to give up and and try and think that other people or medicines are going to be your road to recovery being proactive is really important being proactive with your healthcare professionals you know your doctors your consultants you know do your own research make suggestions work with people to help your recovery um find out what help is available to you um Trial and error is massive. I, I don't think I can sort of say how much really trial and error comes into play because sometimes there's not a right or a wrong way. Somebody is say, well, do, you know, do this for that long or, you know, something like that. And, and it's not the case. You have to try things and you will get it wrong. There's no doubt about that. But the thing you mustn't do is be hard on yourself because you have to then understand how that feeds into the negative thoughts and behaviors and patterns. So trial and error is a massive, massive thing. You know, you're allowed to make mistakes. Um, and also I think it's the people around you. We didn't, we haven't really touched on other people and families and friends and work colleagues. Um, I like to think that we're being a bit more educated now in the workplace. Um, uh, and even with friends and family where we can speak openly to them and say, this is what I need from you. Please, can you give me this when this happens? I've had to do that with my own family and it's been really hard. There's been tears, lots of tears when they don't understand because how can other people that don't have pain understand what it's like for you? I've always given people the benefit of the doubt because how do they know? You know, they're not going to know. But all you can do is, like, I don't ask people, I don't expect people to understand but I want understanding from them. That's two different things. And it's taken a while for me to get that from my family. Um, work colleagues, I've lost jobs. Work is a different kettle of fish. I think it's, it's hard. It's really hard in the workplace to manage pain. Um, and friends, you kind of find out who your friends are when you've got pain as well. So I think engaging with people and just educating them, that will help you. Yeah, there's all... all really really useful tips actually and i think people listening will really appreciate those and then i think on this on the same bent for for the clinicians whether that's doctors physios chiros osteos you know sports therapists whoever's listening and they see people in pain you know multiple times a day what would you want them to understand about someone who yeah whether that's acute or chronic pain what would you want them to understand about it yeah oh goodness me <laughs> i think it's answers on a postcard definitely. yeah definitely because it's I think an overriding statement that I've come across through another friend in pain um, in the last few months is that everything matters when it comes to pain. It's a brilliant sort of slogan because it sums everything up. Everything matters. It really does. You know, you, 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 your, your social life, your friends, your family, your job, everything matters. Your ability to look after yourself, even clean your house, you know, wash your car, go and do your shopping. I think that encompasses it all really is that everything matters. It's not just one or two key things. It's absolutely everything. No, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that, Claire. That's uh, really useful useful because I think that, you know, very quickly clinicians can 
accidentally, because obviously every, you know, I don't think people go into these professions unless they actually do want to help people. But I think people will accidentally diminish things by what they, you know, off the, half, off, off the cuff comments and you know, underhand comments, you know, completely accidentally, but they don't realize the impact that can have. You know, when someone says, don't move like this or don't do that, or, you know, talking about what they can't do compared to what people can do, you know, for example, is something which I, I talk a lot about. Yeah. is really important so little things like that you know thinking about the words that you say and how impactful that can be you know if someone has said to you you know 30 years ago that oh this is all because of x you know you might not you might have avoided something for 30 years that you you know you didn't need to or or shouldn't have been avoiding really so i think just thinking about that is, is yeah. so important it is important and i think one you know another thing for me at the moment which is why i'm hoping things like this podcast can can really help is joining the dots joining the dots in in the, the professional world and the supported self-management because there doesn't seem to be a lot of that out there at the moment for people. And it still pains me that people would have to pay for private treatments because they're not able to get treatment that they need for free on the NHS. And if people haven't got the money, then unfortunately nothing gets done. And I think once you are in the system, you're not guided through, or well, you weren't back in my day. I, I, I still don't think that's happening. I'm not sure because I'm not in it anymore, but it doesn't seem to me that that's the case. And even for people that are practicing privately, I think, you know, those professionals should still be helping that person join the dots and I think we live in such a cynical world that people, you know, people do say that if you say, oh, I'm going, I'm paying to see a physio and it's like, well, yeah, they're not going to, you know, they just want your money. They're not going to help you go any further because they want you to keep seeing them to earn their money. You know, it's, it's a really difficult thing. And I think there's enough people out there in pain that's going to keep people in business for a long time. Um, you know, so that shouldn't be the case. Um, but I'd like to think that as we move forward with the knowledge that we've now got, that patients should be supported through their journey, whether it's through the NHS or if they see somebody privately, that they can they can assess them to the point where they think, right, this is where you're at. This is what I sort of think or suggest you should do next or go and investigate to help them, um, you know, make their next steps in, in their journey of recovery. Amazing. Thank you. So you've done this journey over the last 30 years you've looked at lots of resources i'm sure lots of whether that's blogs twitter people you know books where can other people in your experience turn to to learn more about about chronic pain recovery you know everything we spoke about today really wow there's lots of lots of resources <laughs> um something that i got involved in last year is called flipping pain um it's an it's an initiative that started um by connect health um, to try and uh, sort of make um, pain sort of a community-based initiative. It's based on something that's happening in Australia, which was which had Lauren Mosley's input. And um, those people that, that are listening that will know about Lauren, Lauren Mosley will know that he's just like a god in the physio world. And what, what he does, doesn't know is amazing. And he's, <laughs> he's just so personable and, and a very good presenter as well. Um, so the Flipping Pain Initiative is really good. Uh, if you go on their website, there's masses of information on there. I I'm on there too. I'm not telling you because of that, but um, it's brilliant. So there's also um, pain management courses. Um, one that I've done is called Life After Pain. Um, that is a pain course that's run by a doctor and pain specialist called uh, Jonathan Cutner, who's amazing. I'm still on the course. I'm still part of it. It's it's great. There's Facebook groups for everybody, weekly telephone calls. 
Um, there's also something called Cure Evolve, which is a very similar basis. Um, I've just signed up to do their sort of basic course, but I've heard from colleagues, um, friends, paying friends that have done done the course and say it's very much the same thing with a community, Facebook community, um, lots of support. All the, the neuroscience information is on there. Um, you, you know, I've made good friends all over the world on, on Life After Pain course, which has been amazing. And the support they give is great when we have bad days. Um, livingwellpain.net, um, that's a fantastic resource for sciatica and people with long-term persistent pain. Um, Tina that, that has that uh, that blog and website is, is, is incredible. Highly recommend following her. Um, we've also got My Cup of Joe, which is um, Joletta Belton over in the States. Um, she's quite big in the pain world as a patient advising people pain science that's paul ingraham in uh canada he was one of my very early resources he first introduced me to trigger points i think and even neuroplasticity um and he's a science writer a pain writer he's had his own pain absolutely brilliant very humorous as well if you if you see his stuff online it's really entertaining reading but informative um twitter of course we mentioned uh, and there's another guy that i've just come across on uh, on youtube yeah. Um, what's he called? Pain-free me, pain-free me. He's great. He does little short videos. A lot of it is based all on the brain, all the neuroscience stuff, and calming the system. So I've I'm just beginning to get into him now, which I think is is going to be a good good thing for my end of my journey, really. So that's just a few. Brilliant. And where can people find out more about you? Are you are you on the social medias? I am. I am known as, um, I think I'm Sciatica UK on Twitter. Um, so you can definitely engage with me on there. I This is going to be a good opportunity for me to mention a blog that I am attempting to, and I've said it now, so I have to do it. Um, it's going to be called Sciatica Success because I think it's really important that I blog about this story as well um, and just try and get the message out there about my pain journey and, you know, that people can can relate to and hopefully help some people. Um, so that'll be sciaticasuccess.com. Um, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Um, just I've just checked. You are sciatica underscore UK on, uh, on Twitter. So we'll, we'll have a link to that, link to that in the show notes. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us today, Claire. That's been a, a fascinatingly insightful journey into the life of someone, you know, who's suffered with pain for for so for so long. And, you know, you've tried everything there is, give or take, you know, and you found the solution that works for you. So I'm really happy that, you know, you are now, you know, almost give or take pain free, you know, most of the time and, you know, which, which is wonderful to hear. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, share your story with us. And I'm sure that people listening will hopefully get something from this you know which is our, our goal of doing this in the first place definitely thank you I, I really really am grateful for you to giving me the opportunity to do this and tell the story as well and, and, and put it out there so thank you very much as well no worries thank you Dave thank you for joining us as well I've just been listening I've been lurking thank you so much Claire that was fantastic really interesting to hear your story thank you no worries well thank you everyone for listening everyone take care and I hope you all have a fantastic day take care Okay, guys, this was an interesting discussion for us. I mean, it really shows you how much chronic pain can impact onto people's lives. Something which until you've experienced long-term pain yourself, it's very hard to understand. And I don't think you can ever fully understand it until you've been in a similar situation to Claire's. 
Claire's view of accepting versus management uh, of pain does sit slightly differently to where us as clinicians have been coming from in recent times. Should we be actively pushing people towards promotion of full resolution of pain, even if the chances may be small? Of course, we don't want to be selling false hope and we need to be very careful about the phrasing and the, the chances of success in these end goals. However, on the converse, I really do think that telling people that it won't get better at all is also something that we never want to do. It would seem like a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy of sorts, self-fulfilling a prophecy of sorts. I mean, it really does highlight the dichotomy that clinicians face when dealing with long-term pain patients. It's about having the challenging conversation about the fact that this pain may never fully improve, knowing the impact this may have on their prognosis, but also giving them enough hope and determination that they really need to help resolve their pain. It's a clinical tightrope and every patient is different. What helps one may harm another, but it's an interesting conversation to have. We're fortunate to live in different times compared to the start of Claire's story and I really would hope that any clinicians who are presented with a similar patient would act vastly differently, altering the story from the get-go. I would really hope as well that the sheer volume of information that is so readily available to us Look, we've got the internet, we've got fantastic support groups like our very own sciatica and back pain support group UK. All of this may also help to offer some early stages empowerment to anyone suffering from an unknown cause. I mean, you're currently listening to a podcast dedicated to back pain. Amazing. This just wasn't available back then. And the clinical practice and protocols uh, of practitioners have certainly changed a lot since then, thankfully. So perhaps we can take some positives from this too, guys. Whether you're a back pain sufferer listening at home, you know, people have been there and done that before. Society and clinicians as a whole are changing. There are better practices out there to look after you. If you are a practitioner, you've got a great bit of hindsight into some possible uh, incorrect ways to manage a case. So let's take some positives out of this. Now, whilst your beliefs may differ from what you've heard in this conversation, remember what every, uh, whatever the patient feels and believes is one of the most important factors in their recovery. So everyone and their journey is different. Awesome, guys. Like, follow and share if you are liking what we do. 